Heavenly Father, thank you that we are called and we are loved by you. Thank you for our vocations. Thank you for our calling as not only your child, but as your student. Lord, we all have something to learn. And so would you teach us today and give us open hearts and minds that we'd be receptive to what you want us to hear and learn today. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So in September of 1986, I was a freshman at Concordia University in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I was in an English class, and the professor gave us an assignment to write a persuasive essay. And they said, you can write on whatever you want, but I would suggest you find something that you're passionate about. I, I was 17 when I started college, and in September, I'm not sure I was passionate about much else except sports hanging out with my friends, uh, having a good time. That was pretty much all that I was really excited about. And I thought, that doesn't make a very good persuasive essay. And then it dawned on me, one of the things that I really uh, was wanting was a car. I'm like, I'm a freshman in college. Like, I should have a car now. And I thought, I'm going to write a persuasive essay saying that I need a car. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to sort of kill two birds with one stone. I'm going to finish this assignment, and I am going to send it to my parents because I need a car. And so I wrote the, I worked hard on that essay. I don't remember what grade I got it, but I remember working hard on that essay. And every little point I was making, it had subpoints to all of those points and all the things and all the reasons why I should have a car. And then I finished that letter, printed that thing off, put it in an envelope with the address and a stamp. This is what you used to do in the old days, by the way, just in case you weren't aware of that. And then you put it in the mailbox. And some of you who are like my age, you remember like that, like, did I just make a really big mistake? And can I get that back? And you're like, I can't get it back now. It's in the mailbox. And then it was that dreaded like four or five days that you're waiting for that letter to arrive and getting a response for that. And I remember just like, oh, I hope, like, please, like, let mom get the mail and let it just go well with that. And, and about five days later, the phone in my dorm rings. And it's like, John, it's for you. And so I go down and get the phone. And that was unusual because my mom would call periodically just to see how I was doing. And I pick up the phone and it's dad. That wasn't usual. And I'm like, oh, man. And the first things out of my dad's, I got your letter. Oh, no. Like, oh, no. And I'm waiting. And then there's that awkward pause as only my dad could do. And then he said, I agree with you. You agree <laughs> with me. And now instantly, like my little 17-year-old brain is spinning. I'm thinking, man, my dad was an engineer at Ford Motor. He went off the line and picked up a Mustang right off the line. And it's sitting in the driveway for me. And I'm waiting for this announcement. Like, yeah, we believe we got you a car and come home and get your car. And I'm thinking, okay, what's, what? And it's like, so you got a car, daddy. So well, I don't have it yet. I'm like, oh, okay, so what is it? He said, it's a 1971 Torino. I'm like, okay, I don't know what a Torino, he's like, it's Starsky and Hutch. I'm like, oh, okay, no, okay, now I know what a Torino, I got it, okay, that's cool. Um, when do I get it? He said, well, you got to pay for it for it. What do you mean pay for it? It was like, you got to buy the car, John. It doesn't just, they don't just hand you cars, you got to pay for that car, but I've got it, and it's a good deal on it. I saw it, it's, a, it's good shape, where you can get the car if you want it, here's how much it's going to cost you. I'm like, oh, wow, okay, I guess that's summer money I can put into the car. And I said, okay, Dad, uh, just one other thing I want to talk to you about. Um, insurance is sort of expensive for 17-year-old males um, to drive a car. And I was just wondering, like, are you going to put me on your insurance then? He's like, oh, no, you want a car, you got to get the insurance for your car. I'm like, oh, this is not going well, as I anticipated at all. And I said, well, how about, like, can you help me with gas and sort of the maintenance on it? He's like, no, John, it's your 
car. That means you get to pay everything for your car. And, and I tell you, just to be honest, back then, that didn't sit too well with me. Because I had a lot of friends who were given cars and parents took care of all the expenses with the car. And here I had a 71 Turner. didn't even have a radio in it. I had to cut out on the metal dash a spot for the radio that I bought to fit in there and run wires myself. Um, and I loved that car. It was mostly Bondo, but I loved that car. And I took care of that car. And years later, I grew to appreciate what my dad was doing in that moment. Because he could have just bought me that car, and he could have done the insurance on that car. But my dad had something in the back of his mind that he said, I'm not just here to, to raise a kid. I, I want to raise an adult. And he saw an opportunity, and he took advantage of that. It reminds me of one of my uh, favorite authors, Andy Andrews. He has this great quote about raising kids. He said, raise great kids who become great adults. We, we focus on the first part of that. We want to raise great kids. Well, I tell you what the world does not need is more adult kids. You know, we got plenty of adult kids running around. We don't need more of them. We need great kids who become great adults. And so what I want to do today in this little called series, just a two-weeker, did last week on vocation and today on being a student, that I want to take just that little piece about the life uh, of Jesus. And we don't know much about the life of Jesus. We know the infancy narrative. We talk about that at Christmas time, born in a major. And then there's just that little account that was read for you that talks about Jesus at age 12. Now, it's, it's hard to imagine Jesus was once age 12. That's sort of hard to get our mind around. So I thought I'd help you a little bit and show you a picture of me at 12. That's me um, in school at 12, complete with the comb in the back pocket, if you can see closely there, because that's what everybody did back in that day. I was really cool, and I actually had hair back then. But I remember looking at that picture at 12, and I'm like, you couldn't have left me alone for an hour without me getting into some kind of trouble. Like, there's no adult on the face of the earth that looks at this picture and goes, this is a trustworthy kid. He can be on his own for a little while. And, and I think, man, Jesus was 12, and, and it wasn't just an hour or three hours. It was three days before they realized he wasn't a party. It took them three days to find him. And, and so Jesus, not panicking at all, is sitting in the temple. And that's where we want to pick up the story a little bit. So if you've got your Bibles and want to look at that, or if you've got your outline, or you can go to the YouVersion Bible app, for those of you who've got that, and you've got the outline of the message and all the, the passages here. But take a look at verse 49 again. Here's what it says. He said, Why were you searching for me? Jesus asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my Father's house? And, and I love this at age 12, that Jesus had such a sense of his own identity, that this is who I belong to. I know you're my earthly parents. That's wonderful. But I have a heavenly father that trumps everything. And that's where my identity comes from. This is my father's house. This is where I need to be. And, and how I wish when I was 12, I had that kind of sense of identity. That regardless of what anybody else said about me, that I, I'm just tuned in and focused on what my father says about me. Because, boy, when I, when I was 12, and I remember back in those days and had the school dance, I always thought those were the most torturous days ever. But we went, because all the friends were going, we're going to go to the school dance, and you go in the gymnasium there, and you drink the watered-down punch and some stale cookies, and you're there, and everybody's dancing, and the music is fun. And then all of a sudden, you remember that? The lights start to dim a little bit, and the music slows down, and you're like, uh-oh, 
Like, this is, I got to get out of here, was the only thing I was thinking in my mind. And it's time for me to go to the bathroom, go out somewhere, you know, just go to the payphone, make a phone call, do whatever I need to do. And, and then it was the thing that they did back when I was in middle school, uh, and I don't know what they call it nowadays, or even they still do this, it was snowball, that kind of thing, where ever, all the guys on this side of the wall, all the girls on that side of the wall, and when the music starts, you're going to got to go across and find somebody to dance with, and you're going to dance for a minute, and then the music's going to stop for a second, we're going to say snowball, and you're going to go off and go and find somebody else to dance with, and you keep going back and forth, and I just intimidated by that, like I didn't want to talk to girls, and I can remember praying as a little 12-year-old boy up against the, the bleacher walls in the gymnasium, like, God, please glue my back to this wall where I can't move from this, because I do not want to have to go and interact with girls whatsoever. And, and so I had that. That was my experience growing up. And at some point, you know, friends were like, John, you've really got to dive into the dish. Ask. Like, what's the worst they could say? No. And I'm like, yeah, that would crush me. It's like, don't just go ahead. It'll be all right. And so I, I can remember, like, some of those first relationships. And nobody told me that there's sort of a continuum that you work through. I thought it's either nothing or you're all in. And so, like, day one, like, hi, John, my name is whatever. And I'm like, I love you forever. Here is my heart on a silver platter you will be mine, and you know, I'm like, what on earth is going on? And inevitably, they're like, wow, this is weird, and they're like, uh, we want to break up like an hour later, and I'm like, I'm crushed, I love them so much. <laughs> and, and so you're just in a puddle there, and then finally I had some great adults who are like, John, you don't jump from there to here. There's a nice little continuum as you get to know one another before you trust somebody with your heart again. And I wish somebody would have told me this lesson when I was going through school, that your identity is not wrapped up in who you're dating or if you're dating or who your friends are or what kind of clothes you wear or what your grade point average is. Your identity is wrapped up in your creator because the creator spent time to make you unique. He knit you together in his mother's womb, as the psalmist writes. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, and God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And the more we can tune ourselves and log ourselves into God's beautiful computer brain in, in, in heaven and tie into what he wants for us, the better off we're going to be when we understand our identity is not in what the world says. And I love this, because this is what God does. This is what baptism is, by the way. When God makes a public commitment, and he says, this is my child. And I love the fact that I can go back to November the 4th in 1968, the day I was baptized, and I know God made a covenant with me. He said, this is my child, and my identity is forever changed because of that moment that God made a covenant with me. And this is a beautiful thing, and, and a lot of us, I think our world needs to understand our identity is not wrapped up in what others say of us, it's wrapped up in what God says of us. And then he goes on with this, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. I don't know why I've read this passage several times, and, and for the first time that word obedient kept popping out at me. He was obedient to him. Because I really do believe to be obedient is to be like Jesus. Because that demonstrated really his whole life was about obedience. And I don't know about you, but I remember when I was growing up as a kid, one of the phrases that I used a lot was, oh, my parents just don't understand. Right? There's songs about that. I and mean, all kinds of things that were written. My parents just don't understand. And that was sort of the culture. Oh, parents. But then I found out that that was true of like every generation. Oh, parents never understand their kids. And I, I thought if there was ever one person 
who could get away with sharing that. It was Jesus. I mean, his parents truly didn't understand. They didn't understand anything. Jesus, the author of life, the creator of the universe, who understands everything, looking at his parents, and he's like, oh, yeah, no, that's a mistake, but yeah, you're the parents, okay, wow, yeah, you're going to realize later that was the wrong thing to say or do in that moment, but that's okay, you're my parents. I, I wonder what that must have been like for Jesus in that moment, but he went back and he was obedient. Not because he needed to be obedient to them. He knew better than they did. But he chose to be obedient as a 12-year-old son. And a lot of us need to learn that lesson. I just don't like authority. No, you just don't like being obedient. And you don't like to be like Jesus, because Jesus was obedient. This is what he does. This is a characteristic of who he is. And I'm so thankful that Jesus was obedient, because it was his obedience that led him to go to a cross. And it was his obedience that led him to give up his life. And I love the way Paul describes this. It's recorded in a book called Philippians in chapter 2. The whole chapter is phenomenal, but I love this. And being found in appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. God, thank you. That, you, that, that was your DNA from the very beginning, that I'm going to become obedient, not because I have to, but because I want to. Because I, I so love the world, and the world is lost, and the world is, is dying, and the world is separated from me. And, and the only way for that to come together is not for them to come to me, but for me to go to them. And for me to make a way for them. And the only way for that to happen is for me to lay down my life. And so I'm going to be obedient. And so he was practicing that as a 12-year-old boy. I'm going to be obedient. Because this is going to define my life. And so this needs to define our life too. We want to be, if we're going to be a student of God, we want to be obedient just like Jesus. And then Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. And so I think the third lesson we can take away from this is committing to a life of growth. And it always pains me when people are like, oh, I graduated. I don't have to learn anymore, any time for the rest of my life. And I've read some scary statistics, like 24% of people after they graduate high school, uh, only 24% of the people read a book after they graduate high school. I'm like, that's frightening to me, <laughs> that we just sort of stop learning, and we're just like, I'm done with that. No, we should be lifelong learners, that we're never done learning. There's more to understand and, and more to comprehend, and, and there's more that God has called us to do, and we can never stop growing and learning. I remember when I was a student, I hated to read. And part of it is because I, I read slower than it seemed most, and it took me forever to get through stories and to comprehend and, and wrestling through that. And, and being told I had to read, I always hated reading. And I remember playing sports. Oh, we got to run this mile, and oh, now we're going to run wind sprints. And oh, I hated running. And what I found is after I wasn't told I had to do it anymore, I missed it. And so I began to pick up books. I'm like, I, I actually enjoy reading. And I began to run. I'm like, I actually enjoy running. And that's the freedom that we have in following Jesus. We don't have to do anything. No, we get to, and we should enjoy those moments and enjoy being a lifelong student. This is what God calls us to be, is students, and constantly in a position where I want to learn more about you, Jesus. So I want to give you a question. I'm going to warn you in advance. Uh, this is a question that I absolutely love because it has so challenged me, and it's a question I hate because it has so challenged some of the things I want to do. And the question is simply this, what story do you want to tell? 
what story do you want to tell? And while you reflect on that question for a moment, let me tell you a story of King David. King David was anointed to be the king of Israel. But the problem was there was already a king, King Saul. And King Saul was the king, and David uh, was rising in popularity. People were singing songs about David, and everybody knew that, oh, wow, God's hand is on David. And Saul was feeling the pressure of that, and he's like, wow, as king, I, I can't have somebody else getting all the glory. It's got to be for me. And he tried to kill him with spears. He threw those spears at him, and uh, David dodges him. And long story short, in 1 Samuel 24, if you want to read it, he goes now into hiding, takes some of his men, and he's running all over Israel, going from town to town. And then he's down in the En Gedi in the desert in Israel, and he's hiding in caves. And King Saul is coming after him. He's got his army, and they're all marching and following the footprints and listening. Where's David? Where have you seen him? And they're all hunting after David, and they're closing in on him. And so David and his men, they're hiding in different caves around. There's hundreds of these caves in the En Gedi. And they're hiding in a cave. And Saul all of a sudden has to stop. It's that time of the day. And he goes into the cave to relieve himself. And he goes in to do his business. Um, and number two. And he's squatting down. And his men are with David in the very cave that Saul is in there relieving himself. And Saul doesn't know he's there. And men are whispering like, David, this is it. This is your great opportunity. Man, you can go and kill him. He won't even know what hit him. Man, this is not even going to be a battle. You can have the kingdom. It's all going to be yours. Just go up. And, and da or David sneaks up to him. And he has a moment where he pauses. And he decides, I'm not going to kill him. And he cuts off a little piece of his cloak. And so Saul finishes his business and goes out and gets on with his army again. And David comes out of the cave and he says, hey, I know you're looking for me. And I want you to know that God delivered you into my hand, but I am not going to rise or raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. I am not going to take your life, Saul, even though I had an opportunity to. Here, I cut off a piece of your cloak, in case you were wondering. You were in the cave. I was hiding in. And I shouldn't have cut that off. I'm sorry for that. But I just want you to know. And Saul's humiliated because he realizes David is a better man than he is. And he goes off and leaves David. That story could have turned out a lot different. I mean, he could have listened to his men and, and killed him and come out of the cave, and he's dead. Here's his head. Here's his sword. I'm, I'm king now. Oh, great, King David. Oh. And then David gathers his grandchildren around as he's older in years, and his grandchildren, hey, King David, would you tell us the story, Grandpa, of how you became king? <laughs> Let me tell you the story. I, I, I was running from Saul for my life. I had just a few men with me and were, were hiding in the caves. And, and Saul got off his animal and went into a cave to relieve himself. And while he was squatting down right there, I snuck up behind him and took a sword and killed him. <laughs> and I became king. Oh, what a great story. <laughs> I, I wonder if David wasn't thinking about that in that moment. What story do I want to tell? I said, what story do you want to tell? And I cheated my way through school. I just copied off everybody. Nobody ever knew. I got great grades and got into great school. Nobody ever knew about it. Is that the story you want to tell about your life? Man, I, I was picking on people, and, and it was fun piling on people, and, and everybody looked at me like I was a class clown because I was constantly just lift, making fun of people. Is that, is that really the story you want to tell? One of the greatest joys I had when I went to my 30th high school reunion uh, was not just seeing a whole bunch of friends I hadn't seen in a long time. My wife and I were there, and, and there was a couple people over in a corner, um, sort of by themselves. And I, I went over, and, and, and it's like, hey, I'm John. It's like, hey, John, good, good to see you. And I'm like, hey, it's so neat. I'm glad you came. I'm like, well, 
I almost didn't come, one of them said. Like, why, why wouldn't you come? He said, because I really didn't like high school. High school was miserable for me. Everybody picked on me, made fun of me, and, and I'm like, man, I, I don't really remember that. And she goes, yeah, you were one of the only ones that was nice to me in high school. Thank you for that, by the way. I'm like, man, I don't even remember being nice to her at all. But I tell you, I'm so glad that's part of my story. And I tell you, this is one of those moments, and I've got regrets in, in my life that I wish that wasn't a part of my story, but it is. And that's why I love this question and I hate this question. What story do you want to tell? Because everything you do is a part of your story. Now, you might hide your story. You might not want to tell your story, but it's always going to be a part of your story. This is why I love this quote from R.C. Sproul. Right now counts forever. And the choices we're making now, it's part of our story. And maybe you've got a past now that you're a little embarrassed of. And the great news about Jesus is he died for that. It's been forgiven. And, and so maybe the best part of your story can be, you know what, that used to be me, but not any longer. Man, I used to trample on people so I could feel a little bit better about myself, but no more. That's not me anymore. I used to do that. But man, I made a decision, and from here on out, I used to just lie so I could get out of problems. But I, I decided uh, I wasn't going to be, that wasn't part of my story. I'm not going to be a guy who always tells lies. I'm going to tell the truth, even, even when it gets me into trouble. I'm going to tell the truth. I want to be trustworthy, and that's going to be my story from here on out. You can change your story, but right now counts forever. So I want to share with you in, in closing just this verse. I love this from Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 17. Whatever you do, whatever you do, when you get up and go to school on Wednesday, when you get up tomorrow and go to work, when you're home eating dinner, when you're hanging out with your friends, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, what a great mission statement for life. Now, whatever I do, God, I want it to be about you and your glory. Because frankly, you're, the, you're my identity. You are who I am. I am yours. And God, what better thing could I do with my life than to bring you glory? This is why I believe that, that students, we should be the best students there are. Followers of Jesus should be the best students there are. Not because we have to, but because we want to bring glory and honor to our Heavenly Father. And so we're going to work to the best of our ability and do things and be obedient to our teachers and administrators and be obedient to our, our um, parents at home and be obedient to our coaches because it brings glory and honor to Jesus. That's why we're doing that, because I want God to get more of the glory. Whatever I do, I'm going to do it for the glory of God as a witness for Him. And when people ask me, wow, you could have cheated your way through that. Why didn't you? Because anything I do, I'm doing it for the glory of God. lived for me. He died for me. He's called me to be his very own. Why would I not respond to that? Not because I have to, but because I get to. And I am free to serve God with my life willingly. And so I'm gladly going to do whatever I do for his glory and for his namesake.